Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 437 with Dr. Michael Unger. Michael has a wealth of information, insight, good research into resilience, what builds it up and how you can build up yours. You'll learn one, the true key to resilience, two, a master checklist for upgrading your resilience, and three, how to change your mood by changing your environment. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F437. Now, here is Michael's story. Dr. Unger is a family therapist and professor of social work at Dalhousie University, where he holds a national research chair in child, family, and community resilience. Dr. Unger has published over 180 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters on the subject of resilience and is the author of 15 books for mental health professionals, researchers, employers, and parents. These include Change Your World, The Science of Resilience, and The True Path of Success, a book for adults experiencing stress at work and at home. So thanks to Michael for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. It's a trying time that challenges all of our basic assumptions. However, one thing that brings us all together is our common humanity. Now more than ever, teams must come together and work together to solve big challenges. And Trello is here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Teams of all shapes and sizes and companies like Google, Fender, and even Costco all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. With Trello, you can work with your team wherever you are, whether it's at home or in an office. No matter what device you're using, computer, tablet, or phone, Trello syncs across all of them, so you can stay up to date on all the things your team cares about. Keep your workflow going from wherever you are with Trello. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com. Trello.com. Here is Michael. Michael, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. My real pleasure, Pete. Nice to be here. Well, I learned that you have built three houses and raised five children, but you said that building the houses was easier. Can you talk about that? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Let's just say that houses, kind of like children, they change your life. They improve the quality of your life and your experience in the world, and they make you calmer, they make you happy, and all those kinds of other things. But they also stay put, right? They don't sort of like change, or at least they're not supposed to, unless it's a flood or something. And kids are a little different. Uh, having raised five, they uh, they don't always sort of, uh, for some reason, they aren't always inspired by my advice. I, I can't understand why that would be, but at least when you put a wall up and you actually hammer a nail in or you get a stud wall up, it kind of stays there. And uh, there is something pretty satisfying about building whatever, any kind of arts, craft, or whatever. Now, so when you built these three houses, that means like you did everything or that's impressive because you're also a mental health powerhouse. These are very different skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the houses were different ones. Some of them were just like seriously 90% reno kind of things. Uh, one of them, literally, we chopped, we cut the wood down off a, a wood lot that my father in law had and milled the wood and 
literally skidded it out of the forest and built the house with it. And I had a master carpenter. I don't have all the skills, but I hired a master carpenter and it was kind of funny. Some days I was his boss in terms of making decisions. And the next day I was just basically the, the laborer on the job site. And he was literally telling me, nail that board and lift that log and do exactly as I tell you. So it was mm -hmm. a really fun, it's great. I always find too, that the more I sort of vary my activities, uh, even my writing, I, I write fiction, I've written a novel, I've written for different audiences, and I find it's the variety that actually keeps me sort of uh, shocks my mind awake, if you will. There, there's something really wonderful about these different experiences. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like much of the research about creativity is just that. You've got deep expertise in one thing, but you dabble in many things, and suddenly associations and ideas and uh, pop up. because, like, oh, this is a lot like nailing a board together. You do see patterns, actually, and that's why, you know, the richer your environment around you, the more people you sort of surround, even if you're not extroverted, there's lots of ways of sort of bringing those experiences to you. If you're just sitting on a park bench, uh, I travel the globe. One of the most wonderful things I get a chance to do is actually just to walk around cities. I do take in some of the cultural events and all that, but often it's just that sense of watching how architecture goes together or how people pattern their lives that you remind you that there are so many different ways that people find pathways to success or just put their lives together in ways that actually make sense. And they, you know, you begin to like, if you're in Japan, Japan looks a lot like where I live in North America, but the assumptions underlying those things are just so, so different where leaving a tip at a restaurant can be an insult. Or when you get on a subway, taking your backpack off and putting it up on the uh, tray sort of above the seat without any fear of it being stolen, it kind of shocks you into new ways of thinking about the world and many of your own sort of certainly for me things that i would just take for granted and i do find that ultimately especially when i write books or, or think of ideas like resilience i'm always sort of trying to sort of get my head out of standard thinking and really see what really is happening mm -hmm. that's maybe the scientist in me oh that's cool well so could you orient us to a particular area of your expertise which is resilience yeah well it's been something a big part of my uh, research and my clinical work for the last uh, i'd say two decades it kind of has become just kind of boiling down to this idea that in the field of resilience if you sip you know if you say to the typical person what do you think is resilience they tend to offer you that kind of idea of bouncing back the personal transformation that personal grit you're like rocky you take anything <laughs> yeah which i love the movie but but it's actually not what the science is actually saying and most of the scientists in the area the real you know people really looking at this are actually telling us now that it's not just about being a rugged individual it's also about being a resourced individual and then in fact most of what changes us most of what gets us through a crisis is actually not inside of us at all the missing piece here is that what mostly gets us through is the resources around us. And if you look at even like the great superstars, you know, you look at like a Ronaldo, a soccer star, or you look at whatever, if you can kind of get close to them, what you'll often discover is less about just how they keep their mindset perfect. But there's always those wonderful stories of people who believed in them. You know, I always say that if I'm going to talk to someone like Ronaldo, I'm going to want to ask him who gave him his first soccer ball. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like who saw in him the potential to keep growing all these aspects of our lives. And yet somehow this conversation we often have about resilience in a very strange way, always puts it right back on our own shoulders that somehow if we just think how the right thoughts show enough grit, have the right mindset that we will succeed. And I hate to burst the bubble, 
But actually, as I sort of talk about in this book, Change Your World, I'm sorry, the evidence is against you on that one. That is actually not the whole story. And so that's kind of what I've been looking at is what resilience comes from and all the different places around the world, including in North America. But what are the factors that make us resilient on the job, in our family lives, et cetera, like that? Well, you know, it's intriguing as you're, you're talking about, it's less about sort of what's inside your brain and more about your, your resources and, and your support group. And I don't know why I've got just this silliest line is coming to my head. It's from an Andy Samberg movie, which is basically spoofing, I think, Justin Bieber's life. And so he's a rock star. And he has all these people around him doing all these things. And he says, it takes a village to make me look dope. And it sounds like in crass, silly terms, that's kind of what you're saying. <laughs> What's even more fascinating is that it's also, it's not just those relationships, which I think sometimes, again, people will, yeah, it's the relationships matter a lot. But it's what the relationships, in a sense, bring us and all the other things. Because, so, you know, people sometimes... I find sometimes when I'm working clinically with people or doing research in this area, people will come back to that. It's always got to be people. And then if they don't have people, I mean, if you're kind of isolated, right, socially isolated, you think I can't be resilient. But actually, I'll give you an example. I was working clinically with a young woman who was uh, a paralegal, came to my office on her lunch hours, dressed to the nines, just, you know, completely put together. And uh, by the way, as a social worker and family therapist, I'm not sitting in the office with a suit and tie sort of thing. So she mm -hmm. always impressed me that way. And but she was in a, this really abusive relationship, and I could never quite reconcile how this very put-together, confident young woman who came into my office with that energy could go home and just so let herself, in a sense, not let herself, but it means so, be put into a, in a very abusive situation. And I, you know, I know the psychology of this. I'm, it's a field I've worked in for many years. But what would change that? And, and we tried to get her to change her mindset, to change her thinking about her relationships, etc. But she still sort of had that sense that, no, I'd be worse off with leaving the guy. Anyways, very small little change. I one day asked her to go home, and instead of changing her clothes as she came in the house, which is what she used to do, putting on the track pants and, you know, looking kind of just frumpy and normal, calmed or whatever, and then letting herself be abused by this guy verbally, she just didn't change her clothes. She hmm. stayed in this office, you know, power suit, and it gave her that cue. And in a sense, she had enveloped her in an environment that cued her to say, you are worth more than this guy. And it dramatically changed the work that we did together. That really started her on a path to changing really things that, you know, she, she got rid of the apartment. She left the guy in the apartment. He's kind of moved in on her. She found the supports from her friends to get her stuff out of the apartment. She talked to the police about how to do this safely, et cetera, et cetera. And I was really impressed by what I learned from her, which was that we can create around us these external cues that remind us how to be rugged. In a sense, the resources trigger the ruggedness. And in fact, this is what the science of resilience teaches us, that it's the external world that literally changes how we think, how we attribute cause, what we believe we can do, and whether or not we're actually going to realize our talents, whether that's in the work world or in our family at home. Well, that is fascinating and, and a really inspiring story and fun in terms of the implications that that can have in any number of contexts and, and lives. And we had Todd Herman on the show earlier talk about enclosed cognition and sort of how indeed what you wear said signals and changes sort of your emotional state and your 
capacity to even be effective in, in different contexts. So what I'm digging about that is it's just so darn actionable in terms of the clothes you choose to put on is a part of your environment that's literally right on you. Oh, absolutely. And it goes, if it's okay, I can even take it a little bit further because oh, yeah. people think, okay, I got the clothing down. But of course, we know that, uh, I mean, if you already want to know how to make yourself resilient, you're also going to have to think even further afield, like housing, right? If people often say, oh, I need relationships, I want to be loved, I want to be mattered, all these kinds of things. And I get that, but then they put themselves into, say, small mini McMansions, like very large houses where they might have a couple of kids, but the house is so large, they can't even find the kids, much less call them for dinner. It's kind of interesting that our houses can actually change our mood whether or not there's green spaces outside that home, whether or not we connect to our neighbors, the way we lay out our streets, whether or not we push that big garage to the front of the yard and hide the house sort of back on the yard. All these decisions that we make that in and of themselves seem rather, well, mild, accumulate to stress us or tear apart the very patterns of relationships, the impromptu contacts that we have with our neighbors, the sense of community, coming back to maybe Justin Bieber in the village. <laughs> When people begin to think about a whole list of things, and I do talk about that list, that it is that how we set up our houses, how we have relationships, whether or not people around us give us a powerful identity, whether or not the relationships that we want, we, we've actually set up environments to give those to us. I'll give, I mean, a small example, right? If you're, I don't know, if you have a morning routine for a, you know, a cup of uh, coffee or whatever it is that you drink in the morning, but a lot of people, I often say to people, if you're feeling disconnected and lone, Go back to the same coffee shop for three weeks at the same time. And you'll suddenly get known, <laughs> a little bit like the cheers idea, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you'll walk mm -hmm. in and you'll be the double soy latte extra hot with foam sort of thing. And bit by bit, you become connected into a pattern, a community. And again, we can either tell you to go and go on a yoga retreat and get your mind together or pay a high-priced guru or something like that. But in a sense, that's not going to create a sustainable change. Not unless you already have all these other relationships in place. And if you do, then you're good. If you're not, then the individual flipping the switch in your head is not going to be a sustainable change. And that's not just an opinion. That's unfortunately what the research actually shows in terms of all those wonderful practices where, you know, all that sort of self-help movement stuff that we're preaching at people it ain't working. Well, so I'd love to hear, could you point to one or two or three of the most striking smoking gun studies that really support this paradigm? Well, sure. I mean, even if you just want to stick with centers for disease control sort of statistics, if you prefer, we know that overweight and obesity rates are rising in North American, both countries, Canada, the United States, Mexico, etc. That's the truth. And then we're going to actually see a decrease in people's longevity as a consequence of that. And that's at the same time that we have this, you know, massive diet industry and everyone has access to the internet to get good advice. And there's more advertising and more self-help movements and more opportunities to sort of reflect and fix yourself. What about if we take a different, maybe medications for uh, depression? Again, you'd think with all the self-help out there that in fact, depression rates would be going down and that medication use would be going down. And in fact, it's going in the opposite direction entirely. The same with anxiety disorders and who's appearing at our emergency rooms, especially amongst our children. All these statistics are pointing to the fact that despite this mammoth cornucopia, this smorgasbord of available self-help stuff, the problem is we're so focused on the rugged individual that we've missed that in fact, without 
understanding that we also have to be resource individuals, we are not going to get better. We are actually potentially going to make the situation worse. Now, that's intriguing, certainly. We have ample information uh, at our disposals uh, so to, to do some of that self-help stuff. And, and so obesity overweight is way up now as compared to before, and, and depression, anxiety also way up. So I guess then that would follow that our environments have also become worse you know, in terms of supporting a, a healthy weight or a you know, calm, tranquil, happy uh, mental state. Could you sort of speak to what are some of those environmental factors at work there? Well, I mean, there's some of the big ones that we know about our relationship breakdown. I mean, the irony, by the way, one good stat, if you like, divorce rates are going down. Okay. But that's only because fewer and fewer people are actually married. married. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) They don't even start. (laughs) I hate to tell you this, but it's a good news, bad news story there. If you think about those kinds of statistics, et cetera, et cetera, you really, you're not necessarily seeing a great deal of change. Loneliness, for instance, would probably be the other big problem that we're seeing. A huge number, something like one quarter of US households have people living alone in them. And Mm -hmm. we're not actually designed for that kind of lifestyle. Now, the other side of that is that our kids are staying at home with us. And culturally, there are some cultures that pride. That's a good thing, right? You don't move out until you go and get married or something like that. And that's just the family norm. Thankfully, for my own five children, that is not the family norm. They're they're launching. (laughs) So I can say that. But, you know, you begin to look at loneliness and inability to launch in some cases, living in isolation. These are sort of structural things going on around us, which are breaking down. And and I think, and not just I think, are actually showing up in our emergency rooms and our hospitals and indeed in our doctor's offices where you're seeing a a spike in medications. Intriguing. So loneliness in and of itself is an indicator of a a depleted environment or, or less resource now as it used to be. And what are some other ways that our environments are more bad <laughs> toxic our environments are worse they're toxic they're depleted more so now than before in, in the realms of supporting a healthy weight or a healthy uh, emotional state well the thing is of course the evidence is now mounting about cell phone use screen times and the social isolation and the cumulative stress that that causes in our lives when we're online and and how we relate to other people when we're online and whether or not those relationships really are satisfying to us I mean, in and of itself, using your cell phone, being online a bit is not going to be the problem of using your, you know, having a rich Facebook community that you're swapping photos with your neighbors and friends and family. And this is not the problem. The problem becomes when it's, it's just your only outlet or you're really caught up in that uh, sort of neurological ping of having more and more likes or that that sort of social desirability that you're looking for. It drives me nuts when I see people taking those selfies. You know, they're sitting there in the coffee shop and they're just kind of having a ho-hum day and their facial expression is kind of neutral. And then suddenly they want to pop a selfie and they do this really weird little smirk off to the side. Like somehow that social presentation has to be, I can't just be normal. I have to be upbeat. And if you do it once, that's not a problem. But if that's your whole lifestyle, you are going to be more stressed. It's also not necessarily building the real substance of what we need, which is genuine, well, like not just genuine relationships, but genuine, a sense of your culture, uh, a sense of belonging to something bigger than yourself. I think the part of this that also worries me, and because I study resilience, so I, you're looking for patterns, and this can be on the job site or elsewhere, but you want people to feel like they're making a really genuine contribution, a real contribution to some product or some end goal or mission statement. We are driven 
by that, whether it's in our families. And it's funny when I'm working with people in business settings and stuff, and you often say, well, you know, if, if you're not getting that from your work world, then often what you want to ask people are, are you finding these connections, these sense of meaningful participation in your community outside of your work world. And, and, you know, you ask an audience to raise their hands and I'm sure, you know, listeners too, people would say, you know what, do you volunteer? Are you a member of a religious organization? Oh, I do, Michael. Yes. But <laughs> it's not just the relationship that you're going to enrich. You're also going to get access to more advice resources. I live in a part of the world. I like to joke where I live. We're kind of, um, it's a town of about 400,000 people and we're casserole people. We're maritimers. We're East coasters. And someone down the road breaks a hip, they get a casserole or two mm -hmm. or three. And obviously when there's someone's child is sick, they get a whole freezer load of casseroles. But that kind of stuff brings our communities together. And I'm going to argue that even if your job is not meaningful at work, if you're coming home and cooking a casserole for the, the neighbor down the street, your housing is set up and you're being stable enough in your housing for long enough that you'd actually know that neighbor, then you've got a lot of advantages, a lot of environmental advantages that is actually going to carry you through, well, not only to avoiding depression, which we know, but is also going to carry you through in terms of, of being safer, less opportunities to be exposed to violence. You might even be more active in a community like that. I even just saw, I recently read a study that said your mortgage rate might be lower as well, because of course mm -hmm. you're swapping information with your neighbors, right? So there's massive financial, social, emotional advantages when we do things and feel connected to others, but also in culturally meaningful ways. Absolutely. And well, I can tell you, uh, having recently uh, our, our family uh, given birth to uh, two kids, you know, under two, we appreciate wow. every casserole. <laughs> exactly. Uh, into the equation of the household chaos. It's been much appreciated. So that's cool. Well, let's really get into some of the actionable tidbits with regard to elements of your environment and how to upgrade and build up those resources. We talked about clothing, we talked about housing, we talked about relationships. Could you maybe kind of lay out the kind of the master checklist and, and some of the best practices for upgrading those resources so we'll upgrade our resilience? Yeah, for sure. And kind of list out 12 and change your world, but I'm not going to go oh, through all life. 12 because some of them are hitting here. But but essentially, if obviously you need some structure, you want routine in your life, it carries you through periods of crisis. You want accountability. Put yourself in situations where people rely on you, even if you're just accountable to your dog to take them out for a walk. It's that routine. It's that sense of purpose in life that's given to us by our environments. You're going to want, of course, relationships, but just, I always say, you don't have to be loved. I know it sounds odd, but you do have to matter to somebody. And that's often the tipping point that you see in, in studies of resilience. You have to have a powerful identity. You got to like, there's got to be something special about you. And by the way, identity, let's face it, it's given to us. It's not just homegrown in front of the mirror. It's something that's reinforced and given to us by others who say, you are special at this. Power and control experiences, you really need that sense of efficacy, that sense that you can make a difference and make decisions that count in your life. What about fair treatment is another one that we often overlook. If you're not being treated fairly, you've hit the, the glass ceiling or you're, you're feeling uh, racially uh, pushed aside or your ethnicity is being disparaged or, you know, all these things accumulate in people's lives and make it much more difficult to succeed, especially when times get tough. You need your basic needs met, all those kinds of things. You need a sense of your belonging somewhere in your community or your extended family. And of course, you need things like, finally, yes, you do need positive thinking. It does carry you through a tough period as well, but it's a heck of a lot easier when 
when you see all the other elements of that and just basic financial, you know, you need enough money and a, enough physical health to do the things that frankly matter to you. But can I make that a little more concrete? That's a heck of mm -hmm. a list for people to digest, but let me give you an example. I was uh, doing some work with uh, one of the workmen's workers uh, compensation boards and they were telling, um, I was hearing a great story of a fellow who had injured himself in on an oil rig. He was a right down at the oil, at the wellhead, doing really heavy, hard labor, paid well, very proud of that identity, a real rough and tumble sort of individual. And he injured himself and he could never go back into that kind of heavy work. And it's too often what we do with workers like that is we direct them into IT jobs or some sort of a sales job or something like that. But very wisely, his caseworker got him a job back in the oil patch, but not down in the heavy lifting area. What he was, he was at the front gate checking in and out the trucks as the supply trucks and as people came in and out of the yard. Now, if you think about it, the fellow, he's changed his identity from a, you know, the sort of rough and tumble guy in the, at the wellhead, but he's still in the same industry. And what's more is he's still wearing a hard hat. He has a vest on with the flashy colors, you know, and everything else. He's holding a checklist. So he's in control of things. He's able to direct people. And when he goes to lunch, he's still with the same people that he was hanging around with before. And when he's at the bar or wherever he goes on Saturday night and someone turns him and says, what do you do? He says, I'm in the oil industry. I'm in the oil and gas mm -hmm. industry, right? Now, like for me, that was an interesting lesson learned that when you create continuity and you give someone back access to their, in a sense, almost their culture, a sense of purpose, you give them the same uniform, coming back to what we talked about in terms of dress codes and that type of thing, giving him decision-making power, you know, at, at, there was a real sense of power in his job as well. That's a perfect transition for someone. And that, you know what? They're not going to leave that. They're not going to experience that injury and then fall into depression and God forbid suicide or other kinds of things that sometimes follow when you see people who have gone through these really traumatic injuries on the job. But so when you begin to have this kind of, it's almost like a, like a checklist or a code book on how to make people more resilient. And as you go through it, as you know, we begin to see that the more of those that you check, as I just did with the heart, the sort of this fellow in his hard hat, the more you check, the more likely you are to have success, especially when you hit a really difficult, almost like a time in your life, you're going to stumble. Yeah. Well, that makes some really good sense there with regard to keeping a lot of those things right there. Identity still there, relationships still there, the sense of belonging still there and uh, the relationships that they're mattering. So uh, accountability into some of the same kinds of folks, some of the same structure routine, that, that's pretty cool. So then I'd love to, to get your take then, because you know that is a good size list. You know, what's your impression then, maybe specifically in the context of, of professionals who hit some hard times, maybe just because, oh, do I have to work 12 to 15 hours a week for a few weeks in a row. That's exhausting. Mm -hmm. Or, oh dear, now I've got uh, the demands of job plus sick child or plus sick parent. So there's sort of plenty of work responsibility and then suddenly a whole lot more lands. What are some of your top pro tips to get a, a real good bang for your buck in, in upgrading a key resource? Well, that's a great question. Indeed, you know, you do see that problem of the sandwich generation. It's probably a great example of that. So if I've learned anything from like literally interviewing hundreds of people, all the complex studies that we carry on on these topics, I keep seeing a pattern of well, maybe four simple steps that people go through uh, in trying to figure out, you know, how to cope with a tough situation. Um, and by the way, to be fair, it's going to change depending on 
your risk exposure. So like that is probably the one kernel that we often forget. So if you've got all the supports, all the education, job stability, and a visa card that's not maxed out or a credit card that's not maxed out, right? If you've got all that in place, then you can probably get through that situation you just described, right? Because you're going to have the resources, you're going to have the, you know, you can hire a nurse for your mother who's ill, you can uh, get your kid extra tutoring, you're going to, you can hire a nanny to look after the house while you're gone. Like you've got the infrastructure. So the Mm -hmm. only thing you have to do, depending on, again, so the first thing I, I always encourage people, look at your risk exposure before you run to the next motivational guru. Just Ask yourself first, how many real risks, how many real dangers, how many real threats am I experiencing in my life? And then don't expect that things are going to change if you're under a lot of external stressors. So if you're not under a lot of external stressors, then frankly, change your mind, change your mindset, encourage more grit. I just heard, I was just listening to Brene Brown talk on her sort of, you know, being daring and courageous and these kinds of things. These are all great advice for us. When we have stability in our lives and that we have also some of the, basically we have healthcare, we have resources that allow us to be daring and all this kind of other stuff. So one, get your mindset on, change your heads. Absolutely. That's your first strategy. Second strategy is, heck, if that's still not quite enough, exploit the heck out of all the resources around you, right? Ask for help from your spouse. If that person is willing to step up, demand that they step up, ask your kids for a little bit of support, right? Getting out of the house or whatever, or helping with granny. If she's ill, look to the professionals that you can tap in your community, maybe tap into your savings. If you have some, do whatever you're going to need. You know, if you need time out, pay for a vacation at that time, do whatever it is that's going to carry you through, exploit the heck out of those resources. But I often find that the people I'm working with often are more stressed than that. That's why they're seeing a therapist often or whatever. So the third phase is, of course, you've got to create new resources. And that gets a little bit more tough, guys. That means you go to work and maybe your boss is a you know real, <laughs> whatever word you want to complete that with, that sentence. Jerk face. <laughs> a jerk face. There you go. And maybe you're going to need new resources. Like, you know, if that's not a place you're going to be able to turn, I often say to people, you know, you don't have to quit your job, which I hate. I absolutely hate when I hear people tell people to quit their job and start over. I, I hate that advice because I live in a economy has go through, we're often quite depressed and people don't quit jobs. You got a good job. You got your mortgage covered. You do not quit that job. What you do is if you're really stressed by your boss in a really toxic emotional environment, you make a lateral move. You say to them, is there a special project that I can get reassigned to? Is there a change of hours or shift that I can do to get on to a different shift with a different boss? Can I do an extra workshop or something to train up on a separate skill? It won't increase my pay, but at least it gets me into a different part of the office building or something like that. So often it's about changing the resources around us. If I often say parking spaces, or people often say, I don't have time to exercise. I say, well, actually, change your parking spot. Park further from your office door, right? Decide where you're going to park. Take a, take a parking spot. Pay for, you know, if you're going to have to pay for a spot, pay for one that's three blocks away instead of one block away. Remarkably small efforts like those can actually exploit the environment around you much better. Find a friend. Find a new person. Find a new activity that you're interested in and exploit that activity to network with a new group of people. Each of these is basically saying I can expand my resources. So one, change your head, you know, try and get your head on straight, exploit the resources around you as a second strategy. The third strategy is build more resources if at all possible. And unfortunately, the fourth strategy I see with people, and this has to be said, is if sometimes we're in such tough situations that we cannot find more resources, 
In that case, the only thing we can do is change our expectations. And maybe we don't need such a big house. Maybe we don't need the second car. Maybe we aren't going to go on that vacation that we've always dreamed of this year. And maybe our child is frankly still going to be sick tomorrow. And it's still going to be a really, really crappy, burdensome life that we're going to be living for the next foreseeable future. You don't want to drive yourself crazy with high expectations. So, and in a sense, that brings you back to maybe changing your mindset, but that doesn't mean that that's the end of the story. What that often says is that time is often on our side, that new resources, just through the serendipity of life, just the randomness of where we are and where we could move to. And as our child develops or our parent passes away, if that's where you're at in life, what I've seen people do is they suddenly new doors open and there are, in a sense, new resources that they can, if they're able to, to pull those resources to them. Because if you have those resources outside of you, they will change you. And as we are better resourced, we actually become also, in a sense, more rugged as individuals as well. Right. Well, that's so powerful to think through whatever your situation and then to be able to to go through each of those elements. And, and I'm thinking, you know, real time about how how we've been working with the challenge of having two kids under two years old in the home all of a sudden. And we're asking for some help for, you know, whether someone's bringing some food or grandparents are helping out or, you know, we're spending some money like someone's coming in from time to time to do a little bit of helping with the tidying and, and the food and the, the laundry, all the stuff, <laughs> you know, the bottles upon bottles upon bottles. And that really has made a cool difference. And then as well as changing the expectations, like, hey, it's not going to be tidy all the time. You know, it's a different game we're in right now. And we're okay with that. So, but I'd love to hear we talk about changing your head. How in practice is that done? Well, it's often by putting ourselves in environments that compel the change. It's funny. It's a, we often think it starts from inside, but actually it can actually start a lot from outside. I'll give you a couple of funny little ex- examples. A, a colleague of mine works on a uh, uh, what's called physical literacy. He tries to get kids to move more, which is, you know, oh mm-hmm. my gosh, we're, we're worried about that all the time as parents. You're going to, two-year-olds move a lot. You're not there yet, are you? But eventually they slow down and then you want them to move more. And this, this fellow, what he does is he, did, he went into an elementary school and he put accelerometers on the kids to see how much they were moving and how fast they were moving. And then what he did was he went back on the weekend after he had his baseline measurements And he painted hopscotches in the hallways of the elementary school. Next week, he measured the kids again. Guess what? They were moving more and they were moving faster, Mm -hmm. cumulatively. Now, it's a silly little experiment, perhaps. But if you see this as a pattern, we know that certain environments induce us or nudge us, if you like that word as well, towards different sets of behaviors to change. And they, right. they, in a sense, change our thinking about exercise, about movement. So that's why people get a dog. I mean, it's a great external change. It not only makes us feel like we matter, it not only introduces structure and routine and accountability, it also involves us by compulsion. We must take the dog out for a walk. We're literally outdoors more, hopefully, or, um, and in a sense, moving. So this, these external elements can actually change our experience. And uh, very sort of another uh, sort of a funny example uh, recently of we were in our, in our neighborhood. Um, we have a fairly good set of neighbors, but partly that's because we've owned a house in the same space for a little while. And the other day we had, <laughs> we were having a lot of family over for a turkey dinner and the turkey didn't dethaw. I don't know if you're, if you've ever lived this kind of Mm -hmm. weirdness Mm -hmm. and uh, it was just a too big a bird and it didn't do what it was supposed to do in the fridge. And it just wasn't ready to be cooked when it was supposed to be ready to be cooked. So, uh, my partner goes, scrambles all around the town and finds a couple of uh, other turkeys that 
fresh ones that, that we can cook up and feed everybody. But meanwhile, we have this turkey that's now half dethawed that you can't do anything with. So what we did was we put a call out. We sort of, I'm not sure if you've ever heard the story of the stone soup. You know, the guy oh, right, you know, yeah. shows up in a city town and says, I can, I can make a, a soup from a stone. He just gets every single person in the town to contribute one little ingredient to the pot of water. And suddenly he has a beautiful soup. So we put out a call to our neighbors who, uh, we said, you know, we have a turkey, but we don't have a turkey dinner. And would you, we need potatoes, we need vegetables, we need stuffing, we need gravy, we need this and that. And suddenly, basically two days later, we held a massive party impromptu in our kitchen that brought in 30 people, 30 of our neighbors. And the reason I'm sort of saying that is there's a part of me floating above that whole experience going, if you want to talk about combating loneliness, if you want to talk about feeling connected and knowing that, you know, you have people in your corner, it's not always about deep heart-to-heart -heart thoughts or great emotional moments. It's sometimes about simply saying, join me in a turkey dinner because I have a big bird that I can't eat. And mm -hmm. uh, frankly, I need a little bit of help doing something with this. So I'm always kind of amazed that we can change our emotional moods. We can change our physical behaviors through external environments. And, and I think we do this in the workplace all the time as well, right? I mean, if you're, I often, I've met, I don't know if you've ever met somebody like this, but I, one of the best examples of that I've ever encountered, and it's, it's so mundane, it's silly, but I've met people who don't necessarily find much meaning in their workplace, but they're the birthday person on the job. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if you've ever worked in a place where there's the birthday person, you know, the person who remembers everyone else's birthday and right. make sure the that there's a cake, the, uh -huh. cakes and the cards and stuff. And if you actually sort of look at what's going on, they have found an identity, a role, a way of building community, a sense of purpose and place that has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not they're processing claims for whatever, right? It's a completely, in a sense, an action that reminds them, that changes their mood. It's a small act admittedly they have to be they have to be motivated to do but it kind of reflects back to them and changes who they are that's really cool i really like the the turkey story and it reminds me of a time we had too much beer in a keg i was like 23 years old <laughs> it was like what are you gonna do with all this extra beer and so we like play, made little flyers and slipped them under everyone's door in the apartment building and we did we had a, a bundle of random folk from across the apartment building uh finishing up the keg and it was fun we, we got to know these neighbors like folks we'd never met before like well i'll, I'll show for some free beer I'm sure <laughs> i love it and yeah the difference between being maybe 23 and yeah 43 <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not actually i'm not actually sorry yeah. to say that actually well i'm we right were, in the middle yeah. now it's like what, what's going to be my thing i gotta is it a turkey is it a keg well i'm sure i'll figure it out but this is good food for thought zing terrible podcaster pun <laughs> well tell me michael any final thoughts about boosting resilience before we shift gears and talk about some of your favorite things oh probably the best part of this is uh really just if i could just the research is really clear right i mean it's the external things that make us a mess that cause us the trauma. It would make sense that it's also the external things that are going to heal us. It's, I just don't understand why when we, you know, we talk about the external things, we, there's these wonderful studies out of the U S called the adverse childhood experience studies, where they've identified 10 things that are really going to mess you up as an addict. If you have those things happen as a kid, like abuse and a parent goes to jail and, and a parent with a mental illness or an addiction, or you know, even a divorce or a separation of parents, all these things have long-term health implications for you. And when you're an adult, and that's what the adverse childhood experience studies show. 
but they're all preventable, right? These are all preventable things through good social policy, through good health care, good access to resources. We can prevent families and children from experiencing these awful things, which kind of, if you flip the coin here, it would make sense that if you also gave children, well, beneficial childhood experiences, you would also decrease heart disease and depression in adulthood. You decrease all the illnesses that are now associated with those negative things as kids. And so for me, as much as I'm both a clinician and a scientist and, and a father and a neighbor, there's such a, a robust evidence that says to me, be resourced, not just rugged, it, you, and you'll stop blaming yourself for these problems. Now, Michael, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I, I would still say something along the lines that it's easier to change the world around you than yourself. I, I mean, that's sort of the mantra that I just keep going with uh, over and over again, or maybe even better, <laughs> Joni Mitchell, <laughs> you don't know mm -hmm. what you've got till it's gone, which is sort of a, a riff on the same idea, right? I mean, once you have it, you don't kind of acknowledge it, you don't sort of see it, but boy, once it's gone, you know it. And how about a favorite study or a bit of research? Probably the adverse childhood experience studies, which I just talked about, or there's been some wonderful stuff, uh, sort of the neighborhood studies out of Chicago that were done decades ago, certainly showed much the same, you know, people's uh, need for stable housing, or a recent study up in Alaska by Shauna Burnsilver and her colleagues that showed people's nutrition and health has very little to do with the food supply and a whole lot to do, say, if you're talking about like, you know, a hunting in a more sort of uh, hunter hunting societies, a lot less to do with than how bountiful the, the game is and much more about how the communities share what they have, which kind of speaks again to, you know, we're a lot stronger together and through cultural practices and, and, and how we see ourselves as contributing to the welfare of others. And how about a favorite book? That's tough. I love fiction, but I also like, uh, in sort of the nonfiction realm, if uh, readers haven't come across uh, Chris Hadfield's, you know, Astronaut's Guide to Life and Life in, uh, on Earth, uh, definitely a, a great read. He was, you know, he was the commander of the space station and uh, the guy who did all the musical performances up there and some great photography as well. And he just kind of basically brings it home. He says, you know, there was a lot he learned as an astronaut, but there's a lot of great lessons about how to cooperate in a team and how to work together with others. And uh, I think Chris uh, definitely has a, a great perspective on life. And how about a favorite tool so that it helps you be awesome at your job? I'd have to say, uh, I know it's kind of maybe funny, but actually the tool is probably my family. It's actually what happens, you know, in the prep to okay. get to the job. On the job site, it's probably just finding a common mission. There's something as a principle called collective impact. If people have ever tripped across that idea of, you know, that, that you get people all on the same agenda, you feel like you're all collaborating. I work a lot in international teams where we're spending a lot of time communicating over the web. And I find that you have a, a common mission statement. That's really great. But it's even better when your family is interested in what you're doing and it kind of reinforces it. And how about a favorite habit? Oh, definitely coffee shop, hanging out, watching people. <laughs> Whenever I'm too burnt out or, you know, it's just tired and whatever, especially I travel a great deal. I find it's the coffee shop. It's that haunt of a local, not a chain, but sort of a local kind of hip place to hang out and just watch people. And just that centering space of, of the routine of doing the same thing or having the same kind of drink anywhere in the world. It almost transports you home. It almost just, it just reminds you of sort of a, what life's about, I guess, for that particular moment. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, it's, uh, you can check out my website. It's Michael Unger, that's U-N-G-A-R dot com. Of course, has all the, all the links and the books and stuff like that. If you want to read a bit more, Change Your World's just coming out. Hopefully that will inspire some ideas as well. 
And if they're a little more on the research side, it's the website is uh, resilienceresearch.org. And uh, that's our big uh, research center that we run. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Oh, man. Just, yeah, like focus a little bit less on blaming yourself and trying to be rugged. And just think about putting around yourself, enveloping yourself with the resources that are going to bring out your best. And just let it follow. Just let your mindset be changed by the environment around you so that when people will notice you, situations will make you feel good about yourself. Your success will sort of elevate your identity and your sense of power and control. These things can all be done through the external cues to you as opposed to, you know, I know it's so much work. It, frankly, it's exhausting, exhausting to try and get the world, you know, to try and just change ourselves and then go day after day back into a toxic environment. And I think that is such a formula for depression and other diseases and mental health problems versus just, you know, shifting ourselves a little bit into environments that reward us. Uh, and frankly, if work ain't cutting it, if I could be, then find that elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Volunteer. Uh, there's a jazz festival that comes to where I live every summer. You know, I see people volunteering at that. And I also see people volunteering as coaches in the Little League. There's endless opportunities to give back or to feel like, frankly, you, you have meaning to others. And frankly, that's what resilience is all about. I see it over and over again. Well, Michael, thanks for sharing the good word and, and good luck with your book, Change the World, and all your adventures. Hey, well, thanks. And all the best to you and your young family. What an adventure that is. I really appreciated Michael's wisdom and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I really appreciated Michael's take on using environmental cues to trigger a sense of resourcefulness, resilience within yourself. And that harkens back to the Todd Herman episode of Enclothed Cognition, dressing up like Mr. Rogers to be more sensitive and, and emotionally present or dressing up like a winning performer, baller shark with a, a blazer jacket or, or kind of whatever does the trick for you, as well as other cues in your environment. Maybe there's some indeed life-changing magic associated with tidying up, or maybe there's a scent that really triggers something for you. I've been really enjoying reading also the book Presuasion by Dr. Bob Cialdini. He is amazing, and I hope to have him on the show shortly. I've only reached out three times. I'll do so a dozen more. He's releasing a sixth edition of his book, Influence in January, according to the Amazon upcoming releases. So that may be a ideal time to, to snag the man. But anyway, in his book, Presuasion, which is also great, he talks about how if someone is reviewing a resume on a heavy clipboard, that can trigger associations with something that is weighty, that warrants some, some thorough thought or investigation. Or if you're holding a, a warm cup of coffee or tea, that can bring about associations of, you know, warmth and coziness and, and, and pleasant, good vibes. So, so there you have it. We have some two rock star researchers with heaps of experience, Dr. Michael Unger and Dr. Bob Cialdini, pointing to these truths. So by all means, use them, love them. Hope you dug this. And again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP437. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll punch the subscribe button. If you do, you'll catch our next guest. It's Sandy Rogers. Sandy is over at Franklin Covey, and I love everybody over at Franklin Covey. We also had Todd Davis earlier back in episode 233. And Sandy, one of his claims to fame is he led the team that came up with the famous slogan, Pick Enterprise, we'll pick you up. Well, now he's talking about loyalty 
the exchanges, the conversations that produce it, whether it's with customers or colleagues or other folks that you just would like to be loyal to you, your company, your brand for years and years. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.